Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, I'm in a beautiful garden with my friend, Gay Dillingham, who is the creator and the director of a film I have the, the honor, of her film I have the honor of being in. The film is Dying to Know, which uh, documents the deep friendship between Dr. Timothy Leary and Ramdas. Gay has consistently juggled her parallel passions for the environment, public policy, and communication through film, all in the effort to deepen our human experience and success while being on this marvelous planet. Gay started making documentary films out of college in the late 80s. Her first, The Whip Trail, narrated by Robert Redford, cast a critical eye at our nation's first and still world's only underground nuclear waste repository. It became a community organizing tool and aired on PBS nationally, followed by a panel discussion. My Body Belongs to Me, a children's proactive educational program on sexual abuse, earned the American Film Festival Award for Guidance and Values Education. Her company co-produced Dr. Andrew Wiles' first PBS program in the mid-90s. Gay also co-founded and managed two environmental technology companies, Earthstone International and Growstone. Under the Richardson's administration, she served eight years on EIB, a regulatory board in charge of environmental management and consumer protection in the state of New Mexico. Today, she is again concentrating her passion to inform and enlighten through her film company, CNS Communications. The project Dying to Know has been a labor of love that she has cultivated on and off for 18 years. Welcome, dear Gay, that I love with all my heart. It's been a journey in the last two years since Dying to to Know came to enlighten us, and I want to talk about that with you. Thank you for being my friend and guide and sister, and uh, what a great podcast you have going on here. And um, thank you for coming back to follow up on this story, because it's been an unfolding uh, discovery, putting something that you've worked uh, so hard on 
and so deeply uh, meaningful out into the world and really not knowing how it was going to go and discovering new ways of um, of uh, distributing a film, really. And just we just had a nice IndieWire article because they were, who knows, surprised, delighted, intrigued by our upside-down, backwards <laughs> model that seems to be working and uh, breaking the patterns, the think-for-yourself style of distribution, so... See, I've been excited all morning to come here because I want to hear about the crossroads of your vocation, which I feel is film, information, and passionate activism, Mm -hmm. and how you are embroidering these vocations, these passions, into your filmmaking and the distribution. Yeah, we were just discussing a little while ago that for me, I think the it's the end goal that's always driven me, and that's taken a lot of different forms as <laughs> that sort of nonlinear bio tends to show, you know, from environment and business and film and it's really about how do we get deep in ourselves, both individually and collectively, to make the best decisions we can in moving forward together. And um, how do we unpack, shine a light on some of the more taboo or difficult subjects in a way that's empowering? So, I, yeah, I have been practicing that <laughs> in the nuclear weapons field and child, you know, sexual abuse and... And uh, usually trying to make products that help empower and inform. And um, so with this film, these deeper underlying conversations that we've now been designing, promoting, and encouraging after the screenings in theaters uh, has been so deeply rewarding. People walk away truly changed and inspired and new conversations between parents and kids or grandkids um, is happening intergenerational conversations about how we die how we want to die not just at the end of this particular body but but how we we might practice our ego death every day to feel more to to live more fully so um the the process this particular film has taken, I don't know if you want me to go here now, but, um, yeah, I did not start thinking this is the way it was going to go, per se. I don't know that I had a strong agenda other than, gosh, I hope somebody else likes this film. This topic. <laughs> and the topic. Yes. And I hope what's really interesting to me is going to be interesting to others. But the way a, a typical film gets released and the way the way and this has been changing dramatically because there's a lot more options for filmmakers now than there ever has been but it used to be that um, you make a film then you find the best distributor you can and for the most part you have to hand it over and hope that they do a decent job but you really don't have any more say and they have a product that sits on a shelf and other products you know often take precedent over your film and uh, also, generally, you start in New York, you get a review in New York, and that can make or break a film. You know, if you get a bad review, it's, it's off to a bad start. So we sort of stepped our toe into the water bit by bit as a curiosity because it's very rare that a documentary 
even gets to have theatrical distribution, let alone, you know, what we're experiencing here. So we went to our more obvious audiences first, which was our hometown. We might as well premiere in our hometown. And I went from thinking we weren't, nobody knew that the film was playing to being sold out in an 850-seat theater. And they and, kept coming, and, and they kept, kept coming, <laughs> and they kept coming. Yeah, and then we had eight weeks at our local theater here, Center for Contemporary Arts, and and had a lot of conversations, including you and I had a lot of beautiful um, moments and interactions with audiences here after those screenings. Then we thought, well, let's go to the Bay Area and see if we can hold this trend. And uh, another really deeply successful, meaningful, and financially meaningful. And you called in speakers. And we call every time, yes, we call That's in speakers so- from the community. Whether they and, and they intersect the topics one way or the other. It might be drug policy. It might be hospice or end-of-life issues, right-to-die issues. It might be consciousness in general, um, psychology. So that's been really fun is to find. And people come out because they want to. I'm not paying them to come out. but you know, And they might have organizations that really want to align with this film. And we're heading into New York. And we've got some fabulous scientists that have been running studies at NYU that are going to be speaking with me, and that's exciting. So it's not it's not just a movie; it's an event, uh, and it's it's in a certain sense you're learning from the audience, and the audience is learning from both the film and the people you're bringing to them. Right, the, it, the speakers. Yeah, it's yeah. been an incredibly organic process because each audience is very different. In some cities, if I just go in by myself, you know, I, I either you have a microphone or you don't, depending on the size of the theater. And I just run the mic around. People coming in that intersect the community and uh, the scientists that are that are going to join us in this conversation, Dr. Stephen Ross and uh, the NYU researchers. And then people that might be in drug recovery or rehab or AA um, tend to like it. I've noticed that people that haven't seen the film yet assume it's one thing, and then they're kind of delighted because I don't think we're doing a pro or anti-drug film at all, even though these two characters, you might assume right. one thing or the other. But um, it's really just a journey and discovery, and, uh, and then they both took very different paths relative to their choice choices so yeah interacting with people in these theaters and and creating conversation so it's not a Q&A where I sit up on a stage or something and then you know it's isolated kind of conversation what I've really enjoyed is running a microphone around or just connecting the audience to itself and and being next to people that you may you don't know and generations that are quite spread. I mean, very few films get 18-year-olds and 80-year-olds sitting there together. <laughs> so that's been exciting because um, it creates a richer conversation that we don't get to have when we're by ourselves or with a few friends in a living room. I mean, yes, it's good, of course, but the diversity that comes out of community conversation is there's nothing like it. So I call this our modern campfire. And to go to a theater takes effort. So there's a pilgrimage involved, if you will. 
And uh, it sounds a little religious here, but on the other hand, uh, we're an atheist's uh, film, too. <laughs> Some very hardcore atheists come away saying, I love this film. So, uh, you know, we're not really pigeonholed, which I like. We're not pigeonholed in the 60s in psychedelia. We're also not pigeonholed in a spiritual religious kind of thing, but, but an open conversation, an open question. Very much, uh, to me, the film stripped everything away is about facing our worst fear on the one hand and on the other hand a great expression that there is more to us from people from two people who are in terms of Ramdas and have been deep 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 explorers scientists very often experiment with their own uh, with their own inventions and there you have two people who have experimented with death as far as you can go into it without dying so you're offering that to people and that's that's extraordinary yeah i mean i'd love to know how it's changed you to go around and connect with people in many cities in the United States about these things that are so incredibly poignant. It's been incredibly rewarding, you know, and also to go back and see the threads of my life, that this has been a thread since I was a teenager. I mean, I, I lost a brother when I was 17, and that changed my world. It, he, was, he was the center of my world, adored him. And it brought me really to my knees in a way that helped me start waking up earlier than I would have otherwise. And then by 19, I was studying the process of death and rebirth as transformation, the psychological process. And I went to a wonderful university school, uh, Evergreen State College, which apparently has all the early mycologists. And no wonder I, I found some of this medicine that also helped me It was growing heal. naturally. It was growing all over the, the campus. That's, that's the thing. Is <laughs> it's not like you had to go to a dope dealer to get mushrooms or no, whatever it was. It was, it was in the nature of the environment that you went to. Yeah. Right? And, I, and I had a college experience. I really don't even remember alcohol or and this is when cocaine was big we didn't even have we, it, that wasn't an issue either it was but we we um, you know I'm, I'm not going to go very far there but no. but it's um, on occasion been an important healing and uh, it does make a difference what we choose to ingest so we need to have these conversations and so I started writing and deeply, you know, exploring this idea of having a death-rebirth experience psychologically in order to have profound growth, you know. And um, without that, it's very hard. And we don't have a lot of things in our society that helps, like the rites of passage that you would help take a, a, a teenager through or the rites of passage at the end of the life. Um, because we don't structure this, some of our religious institutions still have this. But for the most part, you know, I, I particularly feel I lost my brother because it was an unconscious form of rites of passage. He drove a mount, uh, accidentally went off a mountain road in a car driving too fast as a 20-year-old. 
and with alcohol involved. So um, I think we lose a lot of young people because we do not help them get through that narrow, dangerous window called adolescence. So rites of passage is the bigger picture here. And until we're willing to have conversation about it and help, help, you know, um, and, and drug use is a form of rites of passage, you know. As you said in the film, we're, we, we all had this craving to be explorers, right? And as humans, that is a craving and find meaning in our life. And uh, I think our drug policies have, have steered us in an in a unfortunate direction. And we're starting to recalibrate that now, thank goodness. You know, there's a, there's a real renaissance in both psychedelic research but also in harm reduction that addiction is not a crime, it's a medical issue. All the issues now with the opiates and how many people are addicted to opiates. Good people had real pain. Next thing you know, they can't get off of it. So what are we going to do about that? Especially when we have a hard time even talking about it. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's all fundamentally very, very profound and um, important. And um, this is just one little vehicle that I created, but it, it opens the conversation. This film opens the conversation, and that's how I like to use it. We need to gather around this modern campfire and uh, our storytelling and um, look at our past uh, and review that past and then contemplate our futures together. You know, I used to teach a sexual abuse um, prevention program in, in the schools here, and uh, I had a short film I showed to the kids. And uh, they were eight years old. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most uh, beautiful things I've done in my life. And uh, so I was wondering if some people come to your film and perhaps share their grief with you about um, losses yeah. that they have experienced with uh, within the drug experience. Yes, absolutely. We get some very deep conversations, um, and I feel privileged to have that kind of trust and openness in a really a public group situation. Ultimately, the vision I would have for this film in its next stage after theatrical is educational, and whether you're at home or in a library or a church or a temple or a school or an old folks' home or a... Um, any of these places where we want to collect and have conversation, I've been trying to design experiences for people that are more personal, small group discussion, and ways to um, explore these topics that can very often feel overwhelming and uh, disempowering. And, and uh, yet, you know, there's a way to be more inspired and open and curious about it as well is what I'm finding, is what I'm finding with these, um, the response and how people... It might be interesting to think, like, for instance, I'm 70 years old. It might be interesting to think that in a few years, a couple of years or whatever, uh, people will be in, um, what's the right word for... um, where people can go, older people can go to be taken care of, to get better care. A nur- I don't like the word nursing home. There's got to be better words. But anyway, I'll but that's what we're doing. We're now nursing the body oh, instead yeah, of true. instead of cultivating the spirit. That's right. And and that's I look at what's around right now, and that is not how I want to 
have my last chapter. So it's, it's, it's to all of our benefit to start rethinking how we are together. And, I, and I, my mother just chose to go um, lower in altitude because she has emphysema. So she moved from Santa Fe where we were both together here. And uh, she's at a lower altitude. And I will say that it's hard because she's in a non-progressive, uh, you know, a, a, a place that's not holding her spirit like like it was held here. Yes, yes, And yes. that's hard. And to it's not natural to only be around old people. As people, we're used to children and parents and grandparents. And so we've, we've kind of evolved into this kind of segregating ourselves. And uh, but I don't know how to fix it. I just know how we need to keep asking the questions and, and working on solving it because... Um, nobody's happy generally in those situations. But sorry to interrupt you, but where where I, I want to go is that a lot of so-called boomers who have had the drug experience, who have had the psychedelic experience, will be in nursing homes. And I think it would be really wonderful to bring that film to, to them. them. Yeah. And so that a, a, a part, a real part of their lives can be recognized mm-hmm. uh, as valuable. I mean, think about, I'm thinking about people 75, 77, 80 years old who've had the psychedelic experience and the spiritual experience. And how, like your mother, I don't know if your mother has, but they might be lonely in the situation where all of that is not recognized. So that's where I'm going. Well, I would love to have, I would love to sign up and do as many uh, so-called nursing homes or uh, as, uh, as I could possibly, you know, as we could possibly get to. And it's funny, I've been talking to people that did of, of your generation and, and saying communes were a little ahead of their time. You know, <laughs> it's really about creating that collective, you know, living experience when you're older. So you can pool resources and all the kinds of things and inspire each other because now you have the time. You're not having to, you know, chop wood and haul water 24-7 as, and raise children. You can be together in these other pursuits and, and also give back, you know. So, yeah, it's been exciting. I did do a screening at my mother's. Uh, oh, you did in Oklahoma. Yeah, how was that? Well, it, it was very interesting. I think because it was Oklahoma, it was a bit of a. And my mom was so excited to show it. I'm like, "Are you sure, mom?" <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was uh, definitely out of the comfort zone, if you will. But the people that did come did, seemed to very much like it and stayed for the conversation, even though it's late and it's hard to do those kind of things later in the evening but no very happy I went I went there and and it in some ways it feels that the film the story might be disarming you know people can come in thinking they hate Timothy Leary because they ruined their child's whatever yeah. and yeah. and there's certainly been that and, and that's valid too and whatever that experience has been but also to like I've said before to see a man like Tim Leary and his early intention as an academician and somebody that then became a, a real missionary for what he felt was an elixir for consciousness. If done properly, set and setting, um, intention, not just random kind of entertainment, if you will. So to look at a controversial character like him 
and look at the arc of his life. We have 80 years of footage beginning to end of the film, 60 years of the just the interview footage, or 50 years of the interview footage. And um, it's interesting to see the arc of a life versus just the judgment of one period. And also, for instance, to see Tim and his actions through the lens of Ram Dass's love, who in large part is telling the story in this film. And, you know, how often we judge and we judge. And, and it's just, um, as a culture, we judge. Our media judges, we chew them up, we spin them out, you know, they're gone now. They're <laughs> marginalized or whatever. And, you know, we, we lose a lot in that process. If we had more compassion and more breadth of what we're looking at, and we're all human trying our best, is what I basically see. And uh, we all are starting from different, you know, have different vantage points. But I'm beginning to yeah. learn that, beginning now to learn that about friendship. Uh, it was amazing how um, if I had a friend and they did something that I judged to be unacceptable, that was the end of the friendship. And now I'm beginning to look at the whole span of the relationship and see that it's just part of the many, many hues of communication that can happen with people. And so that's the beauty of the film also is I love to go to a painter's retrospective, for instance, Mm -hmm. to see their first work all the way to the time they died. And it's absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I feel that Timothy Leary is... is, um, honored by the fact that you look at his entire life and not just as the psychedelic pope, as the papers in England and France used to call yeah, him, yeah. the pope of psychedelia, yeah? Yeah, well that that's interesting because another theme that I really am uh, fairly passionate about in my life is personal to political. And what you just said about your friendships and being able to look at them with, you know, uh, with more compassion and more arc, as we were talking, I, I see how that needs to happen in our political sphere, both in our own country and our candidates and how we treat each other, but how we do our international foreign policy. You know, no country is isolated. You know, there's a reason why certain countries have developed nuclear weapons. And as an example, mm-hmm. how did they get there? What was our role? Was there a role? You can't take anything in isolation. And our diplomacy has gotten so short-sighted and so myo- um, well, myopic, and and it's very hard for us to go stand in somebody else's moccasins, if it's a person or a country, to really understand what's, a, what's underneath it so that we can actually get to solutions. You know, we're at a standoff, and we've got, you know, more weapons are not going to save us. <laughs> what is going on in Korea? I mean, you were in, uh, you've been twice to Korea, and you went with uh, many great women in May. And uh, I'm not so much asking you to recount that trip, which is, of course, fascinating. But what, what's going on over there? Because we what don't, we don't, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> we don't, we don't understand it from here. We, we have no, I have no idea. We definitely, we definitely, we're talking about North Korea, not just yeah. Korea. Yeah. So yes, I've been twice. First was 2010 and then 2015. 
And I will just say that we do not understand from, from, from this perspective. And even going inside of North Korea and, and having the kind of meetings I had um, from the first trip, which was top-level government officials, vice president, head of the military, one of three people in these very <laughs> pretty intense meetings. Well, when things, yeah, he went, went along as a uh, for CNN, Reporter. but um, I felt. I will just say that I felt like Alice in Wonderland every moment, going through the looking glass, seeing from the other side which was absolutely fascinating, and also realizing how, how our media has not served our understanding at all. We don't understand the history. We don't know how we got to where we got. We don't. The first thing anybody says when I say I've been to North Korea is, oh, that crazy, horrible, what? evil. And yeah, we can say all that, absolutely, you know. But we don't, this is a third-generation dictator that has been isolated and had nuclear weapons pointed at them for many, many years, and now it's in basically the same, but from space, not not terrestrial uh, as much anymore. But we did have an agreement in 1994 under Clinton called the Agreed Framework, which would have started unwinding and having more interaction, and who knows where that could have gone, but unfortunately we pulled back on that agreement um, when the Republicans felt we were too soft on North Korea mm-hmm. and uh, needed to punish and isolate and sanction and you know uh, I'm not saying sanctions and those kind of things don't have a place I think they do but like with any animal you corner an animal and they get more aggressive uh-huh. right and that's what we've done and uh, I think we had more opportunities to 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 stop and uh, curtail their development of nuclear weapons. We didn't. Um, I find that us being concerned that they're going to nuke Seoul or even our own borders with these intercontinental ballistic missiles is, that's not where I spend my time being concerned. Mm-hmm. Where I spend my time being concerned is they have developed this technology. They used to be in the nonproliferation treaty, signatory to it, and they, they um, stepped out of that. Um, after a series of things happened. But what keeps me up at night is that they can and will and have supplied the black market, the non-state actors with material and know-how. And that's every single day, minute, moment, month we don't deal with this, the riskier it gets. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was with Timothy, he sent me to see a scientist uh, Called Ted Taylor was one of the uh, one of the people who participated in the Manhattan Project, uh, but later on uh, was Project uh, was involved with Project Orion, which was uh, about lifting a city the size of Chicago into space mm-hmm. because we were going to run out of room on this planet. I mean that was one of the crazy ideas running along, and. Um, he was telling me that a lot of plutonium was being um, was being sold on the black market and was being marketed. Mm-hmm. So you're bringing back that uh, that notion. Well, let me let me bring up the second trip I did, which was in yeah. 2015, with 30 international women, including two Nobel Peace laureates, uh, one from Northern Ireland who helped stop that civil war, Marie McGuire, 
and Lema Bowie from Liberia who helped stop their civil war. Gloria Steinem was on the trip and a number of really amazing women. I mean, I am so spoiled now <laughs> in terms of, you know, the kind of decisions and pressure we were under and how well we all worked together. But one of the women on the trip from Sweden had actually lived in North Korea and really helped me quite a bit open my my eyes and mind to what it's like to live there. But one of the fables she told me was it's a cha- uh, Japanese fable, The Hall of a Thousand Mirrors. And when a, and a dog uh, walks into the House of a Thousand Mirrors and it's happy and it's wagging its tail, it sees a thousand wagging happy puppies looking back at it. And uh, the next time the little puppy walked in, it, it saw something that got, sp- he got spooked. And so he started growling and got his hackles up. And then he had a thousand other pup- you know, dogs growling and had their hack- you know, growling back at him. So I find that a really interesting fable because that, to me, is this personal to political, how we are manifesting our, our inner mind, you know, our dualism, us and them, the enemy. Uh, and it sounds a little esoteric, but it's so, so truly practical. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so the deeper we go into our own personal growth, that is the way we can heal you know, our village and our state and our world. And as soon as, as long as we keep calling, you know, as long as we keep having enemies inside, we're going to have enemies outside. And uh, I know there are real challenges in the world and resource wars and all kinds of things. But as they say, until you walk a thousand miles in someone else's moccasins, you can't begin to find a solution. So, yeah, no, and, and then back to the, 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 the film. There's a lot of vehicles. It's dreams. It's meditation. It's sometimes sacred medicine or psychedelics. It's these ways in which we can shine a light inside and out. We're, um, we're coming around to the end of our conversation <laughs> here. To be uh, again. Oh, my goodness, yes, Absolutely. I just want to ask you quickly, you're a passionate environmentalist, and uh, the universe knows we need that, and so does Future Primitive know that. Uh, You've been in politics. Do you uh, sometimes think about going back into politics? I think everything is politics, actually. I've come to believe that just being alive as a human is politics. The choices we make, it's all politics. I stood back for a little while because I was so over, (laughs) put so much time into it that I really had to detach for a while in order to see more upstream, if you will, or be, you know, into the headwaters of the problem. And that's why I came back to this film. You know, one of the reasons I came back to the film. So until, yeah, I, uh, the environmental piece is, uh, I do call this my environmental film, too, because until we see ourselves in that cycle of life and death where nature lives and we live, even if we want to ignore it, until we get naturalized and with that notion, we can't solve our environmental issues. Or our social (laughs) political issues. (laughs) Or our relationship issues. Yeah. So beautiful to be here with you. My eyes were just running around this, looking at the trees, and and yeah. uh, it's just we're wonderful. Here, we? We're so lucky. Thank you very, very much, Gary, and 
We shall do it again. Thank you, Joanna. You've been a friend for many decades now. We've seen each other through a lot of uh, chapters. Chapters.